What comes to your mind when you hear the word slap? No, not this kind of slap. Although, the effects from the strategic lawsuit against public participation can be as painful and they last longer. Slaps, or strategic lawsuits against public participation, are lawsuits that are designed not to win in court, but rather to censor, intimidate, and bankrupt the defendants. It's a typical David and Goliath scenario in which plaintiffs are powerful individuals, businessmen, politicians, and the defendants are journalists, bloggers, NGOs that are just trying to do their job. But individuals and corporations with deep pockets consider it reputational damage, and they can afford to stretch out these lawsuits for years to shut down their critics. Slaps put immense psychological and financial strain on journalists, and it can be a very long fight. They are detrimental to the press freedom. In this episode of Trouble with the Truth, we'll unpack the term, talk about why these lawsuits are so damaging, and look at how we can end them once and for all. Our guests are Rebecca Vincent, Director of International Campaigns for Reporters Without Borders, Susan Coftree, the Project Director of the Foreign Policy Center, and Scott Stedman, the founder of Forensic News. You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. Slaps can take many shapes. It's an abuse of law that can affect a journalist from any part of the world. In Brazil, journalist and author GP Cuenca was hit with more than 140 lawsuits after he tweeted a joke. The lawsuits were filed by the pastors of the Brazilian Universal Church, known for its links to the President Jair Bolsonaro. Even famous talk show hosts are not spared. Laurie's attorneys had sent us two separate letters warning us that if we aired the story, he would sue, and threatening that home box office is in for the fight of its existence. Trouble with the Truth mentioned slaps quite a few times. Claire Rucastle-Brown, who uncovered the 1MDB scandal, became a victim of slaps and was even forced to remortgage her house in order to cover the legal fees. But the slap case that I want to focus on is a defamation lawsuit brought against journalist Carol Cadwallader. She is one of the most tenacious and brave investigative journalists in the UK, who writes for The Guardian, The Observer, and other outlets. In 2018, she broke the story on the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal. The political consulting firm helped with Donald Trump's election campaign and vote leave campaign. The founders claimed that with the help of data, they could change the audience's behavior. A whistleblower, Christopher Wiley, revealed that the firm harvested the data of over 87 million Facebook users without their consent. But it wasn't the Facebook that sued Carol, although they did send her a few threatening letters. This is the Royal Court of Justice, one of the most coveted institutions in England. At the end of January, Carol faced a defamation lawsuit from a businessman, Aaron Banks, who was also a prominent donor of Brexit campaign. And I'm not even going to go into the lies that Aaron Banks has told about his covert relationship with the Russian government. She said these words during her TED talk in Canada in 2019 and later referred to them in a tweet. 23 words that led to a never-ending legal battle. I think that Carol Cadwallader's case is a really interesting example of slap. Um, it's an emblematic case for many reasons. Um, and the fact that she's fighting back is really tremendous because very often when journalists are targeted in this way, they aren't able to, for a number of reasons, to, to fight back in the way that she has. 
And before we talk about the details of her case, I just want to emphasize how courageous that is. Um, this is not easy for her. She's she's spoken pretty bravely about the impact it's had on on her mental health, on other areas of her life, financially. Her own home is on the line, and so this is a very serious matter. She was not the first journalist to talk about Aaron Banks's relationship with the Russians during the EU referendum. Previously, the Guardian, Observer, and many more media outlets wrote about his meetings with Russian officials. It was not a secret. She just reiterated some of the points that were previously made. But Banks' lawyers claim that he was never given a right to reply, although it was just a TED talk. Banks refuses to acknowledge that this lawsuit is a slap, and the line of attack is to present Carol as unprofessional. The cross-examination uh, was really hostile, and I know in British law it is meant to be an adversarial process, mm -hmm. but it felt um, at times like bullying. It felt like I think at one point I tweeted, is, is there a legal, is there a term for legal gaslighting? It felt like that. It was almost trying to put words in her mouth and intentionally miscategorize things that she had said or done. Um, I found that very difficult to stomach. And it was clearly difficult for Carol uh, on a personal level. Um, she, she was excellent in sticking to her points and sticking to her principles. Um, it was clear that uh, that that the claimant was rattled in, in, by some of these areas. For example, the fact that there was support for her in the courtroom. A number of journalists and editors and NGOs were there present uh, in her support. And several times throughout the cross-examination, um, Banks's lawyer had referred to, "Don't look at people in the public gallery." You know, um, just things like this, which which was a bit absurd. But clearly, they they noted this presence and the support that she had there. Um, they referred a few times to the fact that this isn't a slap. They they really didn't like it being categorized as such. Um, Banks tried to portray himself as somebody who was hurt by the allegations that Carol had made, not as somebody who was attempting to silence an independent journalist or to silence the press. Um, but maybe this will be a lesson to others who might think about such litigation tactics against journalists. Um, if you pursue suits such as this, that is the impression that you will create. You actually draw more public attention to you know the claims in question the reporting in question more people know about carol's reporting and carol's ted talk on aaron banks because of this lawsuit that he's pursued against her than if he had simply let it lie and he does now come off as this sort of public figure that's using the law uh, to try to silence a journalist that that is the impression he has created in his own behavior um, so that's what's come out so far. This is still an active case. We are waiting at the moment um, for the written decision to follow. I understand it could be some weeks or months still. Uh, so we're waiting to see what the high court judgment will be in this case. Um, but it has the potential to be a really landmark ruling uh, in terms of testing the public interest defense here in the UK. It's important to note that Banks is suing Carol as an individual. He's not suing Ted or The Guardian. Thus separating her from legal and financial resources that she could have used. Carol had to crowdfund to cover her legal fees. In case of Aaron Banks loses, his finances will take a very small dip. But in Carol's case, she might even go bankrupt. It targets her not for, uh, not for something that she published in, in these media outlets, but for 23 words that she said, a single sentence in a talk she gave to TED in Canada in 2019. I think that that is one of the clearest indications that it is a slap, is the fact that Erin Banks singled her out in this way. 
he could have sued her for some of her mm -hmm. similar reporting for the Guardian or the Observer, and then she would have had the full financial and legal support of those publications because, of course, that had gone through the full editorial process there. It had been lawyered and published. Um, and some of that reporting was very similar to the, the claims that she made in the TED talk and in this tweet. Mm -hmm. In fact, as she pointed out in her defense, Erin Banks could have sued TED because TED is the publisher here. Um, TED published and continues to publish this content. It is on the TED site today. Anybody can can go find it and see, you know, this this supposedly shocking allegation that, that she made. Um, and she did go through an editorial process with Ted as well. This is something that, that Carol referred to many times um, in her cross-examination at the High Court uh, just a few weeks ago is uh, that journalism is a team sport, that is, it is a shared responsibility, that there are uh, multiple parties involved. So the journalists, the editors, the sub-editors, and the publisher. And under UK law, the publisher bears ultimate responsibility. Um, so Aaron Banks easily could have sued Ted, but he didn't. I think that uh, shedding more light on it and, and greater public awareness is, a, is, is a, an important first step. Here in the UK, uh, we do have a, a specific problem, which is why are so many of these cases litigated here, especially in London courts? Why is this jurisdiction so popular for these types of cases? We're coming across uh, in increasingly cases of journalists in other countries who are being targeted in UK courts, uh, specifically in England and Wales. And often these are, are cases of journalists who are not British, who don't write for British publications, um, who have no real ties here, and they're surprised to see a suit being brought forward here. We had defamation reform in this country, I believe in 2013, um, which was supposed to address some of these issues. Um, this is a phenomenon beyond just slap that's, that's known as libel tourism, sort of the shopping around for a, a jurisdiction where a claimant feels that they have the greatest chances of success. And we, we used to have an even bigger problem with that here in London. Um, but clearly the, the legislative reform in, in 2013 did not go far enough. Indeed, the 2013 Defamation Act doesn't go far enough, and journalists who haven't even set foot on British soil are finding themselves being sued by English law firms, like Scott Stedman, the founder of the Forensic News. Forensic News is a small media outlet based in California. It specializes on corruption, national security, and financial crimes. Scott and his colleagues are being sued by a man called Walter Soriano, a British-Israeli businessman and a security consultant. Walter Soriano I should back up and say that um, in 2019, when we first wrote about him, he was a subject for the Senate Intelligence Committee's mm -hmm. uh, investigation into Russia and foreign interference. Um, and so we wrote a few, uh, six articles ab about him over the course of like a year. And we've established that he has worked pretty closely for a few of the um, more high profile Russian oligarchs. Oleg Deripaska is Soriano's works for him in, in multiple capacities. Mm -hmm. So Soriano has a company called USG Security. They do uh, like business intelligence work, but also like physical security, uh, protecting people. And so one of the first things that Soriano's company did for Deripaska that we found was during the Sochi Olympics in 2014, Soriano's company got a huge contract to basically secure the airport. Um, and the airport is owned by one of Deripaska's companies. He's also connected Deripaska to private Israeli intelligence companies mm -hmm. that have subsequently done, done work for Deripaska. Um, 
couple other oligarchs that Soriano has worked for, Dmitry Bolovlev and Roman Abramovich, some of, you know, some of the richest people mm-hmm. on earth. We can see through Soriano's business history that he's partnered with pretty much all of Netanyahu's top, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of Netanyahu's mm-hmm. top advisors, um, his top lawyer, former uh, head of Mossad, former head of other is- intelligence agencies have all worked with Soriano uh, through his company. So basically what we've established here is that Soriano knows the most powerful people in Israel and in Russia and elsewhere, but especially those two places. And he kind of acts as this under the radar operative for those those people. On 15th of February, Scott released an appeal asking his supporters to contribute to his legal crowdfunder. In 2021, the England and Wales Court of Appeals ruled that in part because the forensic news had six subscriptions in euros and pounds through Patreon, the lawsuit was allowed to go on. Six subscriptions. Walter Soriano is suing forensic news for defamation and alleged breaches of the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. I didn't think in my wildest dreams that I'd be fighting a lawsuit, you know, what, 5,000 plus miles away. Um, but, you know, it, it does come with, with the territory. I'm writing about corruption. I'm writing about, you know, billionaires and, and powerful figures. Um, so, I, you know, I do, I'm not, I didn't go into this blind. You know, I, I did expect some sort of legal intimidation throughout the, throughout the years on our stories. Um, but I didn't think it would reach this point to where I'm um, not only fighting a, you know, a pretty stressful defamation GDPR lawsuit, but also it's not anywhere near me. Um, just a few weeks before Soriano sued us, Deripaska sent us, or his, his lawyer sent us a letter. Um, and we view this all as kind of a, you know, an, an effort to intimidate and, and silence. Um, mm-hmm. His lawyers basically said, you have to provide Deripaska your sources, uh, you have to give them the documentation and kind of send us like this six page, pretty much like, you know, watch your back legalese letter. And then a few weeks later, Soriano sues us. Um, so that speaks to the larger point of, you know, what do they want out of it? I think a lot of it is intimidation. Um, and the other part, like you said, he, Soriano wants to be that private person. He wants to be the under the radar kind of operative for these these powerful people to um to turn to and so i think anyone that's that writes about soriano Mm -hmm. is and and, you know this is another point but uh anyone that writes about him is in kind of a legal danger you know i think the the big thing right now is the awareness campaign that we Mm -hmm. have um obviously we're, we're trying to raise money but also like just the journalist in me still sees walter soriano as a person that needs to be scrutinized in terms of his business activities. Um, Like I see him as a very important figure in uh, the oligarchs moving uh, influence into the West. Mm -hmm. Obviously he's, he's based in London and he runs his business intelligence company for a lot of uh, clients that are very powerful elsewhere outside of England. Um, So the, the awareness part of that is, is important for us. I think um seeing this and you know not to be too kind of over the top and allegorical but it is kind of a david and goliath situation um you know we're a bootstrapped organization you know i i put my own savings into forensic news 
and that's how it started. Um, and Soriano, I don't know his exact, you know, net worth, but it's many, many, many millions of dollars. And so this is kind of just one slice of his budget. But for me, it's, it's now my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of the framing that I see this case and, and hopefully others um, will pick that up and, and, and write about Soriano, even if there is, you know, some, some legal threat there. Um, or, or write about the case itself, um, because it is setting kind of a new legal precedent that journalists have to be kind of aware of, at least generally. Carol and Scott's case are just two examples of slaps that received media attention. Countless bloggers and activists from small towns and villages who take on giants face ruin because of the inconvenient truth. One of the steps taken by the Justice for Journalists Foundation and the Foreign Policy Center was to organize a conference dedicated to the problem of slaps. It was a space where journalists could open up about their often traumatic legal persecution and find like-minded people. What shifted from the time when it was a point of honor to have a libel suit to now is that the financial model of newspapers in particular has collapsed. So whereas previously there had been something uh, of an equality of arms, that just is not there anymore. Uh, We're in a position where local newspapers in particular in this country do not fight libel actions, right? So if you are written about and you are relatively wealthy in the regions in the UK, you would be well advised to sue, right? Because, Because the newspaper will collapse, they will fold, and they will not fight it. And unfortunately, that is increasingly becoming the case uh, with national newspapers. What happens is that they they make a judgment. Is this story big enough to fight? Who cares about this obscure kleptocrat in some part of the country or some part of the world that nobody really knows about? Our former president, Donald Trump, his um, election really changed a lot for me in my experience in two ways. Um, First, he appointed over 200 federal judges, and um, some of those judges are making really alarming decisions um, in regards to press freedoms right now. But more generally, he really created this culture of this war against the media where, you know, like we were just discussing, most journalists are, you know, I check, you know, my stories are fact-checked, legal, I work so hard to make sure there is not one error in that story, but Trump really gave um, the impression to people that journalists are just, they all have an agenda, they're making everything up, they're, you know, they're, there's kind of a war against the, um, the people, you know, good people of America against journalists. And... I, you know, the threats I used to get in regards to these stories used to be about the facts of my stories, and those I never really cared that much about because I I always stand by the facts of my stories. But after Trump, I got the impression that um, the the, the defamation threats I was getting were less about, you know, asking for a correction or, you know, demanding something was different. It was more about this idea that if this case got to a jury or or kind of you know got into a jurisdiction that would be more favorable um it would they could be they could prove that i had an like a me too agenda there's certainly been a mobilization uh within the ngo community on slap but i'm i'm pleased to say i think there has over the last year also been increased awareness of slaps and particularly because of certain cases mm-hmm. uh, which you know bear the hallmarks of slaps has brought more media attention um, Mm -hmm. as well and in turn then you know sort of political engagement 
I think um, the filing of several cases against the journalist and author Catherine Belton, which was happening in March and May, uh, prompted several media uh, outlets and journalists to write about their concerns of this kind of legal pylon on a journalist mm -hmm. and uh, also their fears about then reporting about that legal mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, intimidation. Catherine Belton and her publisher Harper Collins were sued by none other than Raman Abramovich, Russian oligarch with close ties to Putin and the owner of the Chelsea Football Club. The lawsuit was over some points she made about him in her best-selling book, Putin's People. I, I'd like to think that was a key success of the conference. You know, as you say, people um, were kind of talking about how it was nice to be able to talk about this and not be suffering in silence. And a few of the journalists I spoke to, you know, when inviting them to participate, they were a little bit nervous about speaking about it um, and concerned about perhaps going into too much detail about their, you know, their actual legal case. And the point isn't so much, you know, what we're interested in is the impact it has on journalists and the impact it has on media freedom. And that's the message that, um, you know, I think came across clearly in the conference and that, you know, journalists shouldn't be silenced about these threats mm -hmm. against them. Um, and several of the journalists who participated spoke about how, you know, cathartic the process was and meeting other journalists, um, particularly those who were able to attend, pers you know, physically in London, um, being able to have those informal chats with someone else who's gone through, I think it's quite a unique experience being sued in, in, in such a way. Uh, and um, I think being able to talk about it with others and also see that others, um, hopefully those watching maybe who have been subject to legal threats, um, seeing other people um, talk about it and relating and might give some confidence. And I think we've seen that with media reports over the last year. There's been a kind of increased sort of snowballing effect with more people reporting on cases. And I think the key thing out of all of this is that, um, and it's been raised time and time again by policy, by policymakers, is we need evidence. In order to address the problem, we really need to document the cases and, um, you know, really kind of compel uh, policymakers um, with these stories and show it's not just a due legal process that this is there is a bullying element to this and there it is being misused to suppress you know topics of public um, interest. There's now an anti-slap coalition chaired by the Foreign Policy Center, Index of Censorship and English Pen. It was created to research and monitor slap cases. They're also pushing for strengthening anti-slap laws in order to hold the legal abuse of journalists and protect freedom of the press. Certainly the momentum over the last year has been really encouraging um, and we have seen you know, greater engagement with uh, you know, government departments and politicians raising slaps for the first time in parliament as well as peers in, in the House of Lords. Um, but we've got a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> needs more, needs more uh, thinking and um, you know, putting these proposals forward. But it's great to see that the UK is engaging. Mm -hmm. um, there are initiatives also underway at the Council of Europe and interest a recent report came out at the OCE both institutions that the UK is part of so we'd really like to see you know the UK sort of step up and, um, and retake a, a role a more active role in, in finding a solution um, particularly given the transnational nature that we've seen of slaps emanating out of London not just the domestic situation and I think my message to any journalists who find them on the themselves on the receiving end of such threats is that there's there's many of us out there who you know are able to at least speak up and and help shed light on this um, there are there are concrete forms of assistance available I know some organizations we work with have funds that can assist with 
legal support in fighting such cases. Um, there's certainly expert advice available. Um, you mentioned this, this UK anti-slap coalition that we have. There's one on the European level as well. There is help out there. I think the first step is recognizing that your case is a slap uh, mm -hmm. and then deciding what to do next. Just today, on 8th of February, journalist Tom Burgess had to face a defamation lawsuit from a Kazakh multinational mining company, ENCR, over some passages from his latest book, Cliptopia. The trial is ongoing.